Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 11. And I'm finishing up the chapter we've gone verse by verse through. And in September, we'll probably move into Mark 12 some, unless the Lord shows us something else along the way. The title of my message today is, By What Authority? It's a question that's asked within the story. And I know God's going to speak to you today because he has really convicted me uh, through this teaching uh, before I pass it on to you. Mark chapter 11, starting with verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple complex, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Answer me. 31, they began to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was a genuine prophet. So they answered Jesus, we, do, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together. God, uh, the question was asked to Jesus by what authority? And it's a good question for us today. And though Jesus, you didn't answer this implicitly in this story, you answered it with your life, you answered it on the cross, you answered it through the resurrection. And Lord, I pray that today that we would have uh, you as our answer. God, when we've run out of answers, you're what is left and you are more than sufficient. So we praise you, we thank you for that. As in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in the 1990s and 2000s, I used to listen to a guy named John Maxwell teach leadership principles all the time. I mean, he, this guy, he was like the standard leadership guru. And he had a talk that I really enjoyed called, You Have to Have a System. He talked about all these quirky little systems that he had uh, to like not forget his keys or how to pick up his wife from the mall in the day before cell phones and all that kind of stuff. And, and one of these stories really stuck out to me in this lesson. He came to a point in his life where John had to have reading glasses. So he's at the optometrist and he's writing the prescription. And John says, Doc, I, I need you to write me five prescriptions. And he says, well, John, I'll do that, but no one's ever asked for five of these before. You've got to tell me why you need five. And so he did. He said, well, I need one for my office. That's where I do a lot of reading. I need another for my home office. I need another for my reading chair in the living room. I need a fourth for my nightstand by my bed. And I need a fifth because I get stuck in Atlanta traffic every day, so I need it for my car. Now, that's a system, is it not? You understand why the optometrist said, I just got to know. Because whenever we encounter something we've never seen or heard before, it's a logical question to ask why. And Jesus came and disrupted everything. And so the religious leaders were asking why. The religious leaders were the ones who were holding to the Jewish customs and the Jewish law that 
we now know pointed to our sinfulness. It didn't really point to anything that gave us life. And Jesus came and began to disrupt that whole religious system. And so we see here in verse 27, you can look on the screen. It says, they came again to Jerusalem as he was walking the temple complex, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. So this is like the trifecta here of religious leaders. Everybody came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Here's the first thing I want you to write down. This is kind of like preliminary points before we get to the real points. We question what we do not understand. Write that, those blanks down if you're taking notes. And I want you to understand this because the question they asked wasn't necessarily a bad one. Just like the optometrist asked John Maxwell, why do you want five prescriptions? They're coming and saying, why are you doing this? And they're asking a, a really good question. They're asking the question, by what authority are you doing this? That's a question I've asked before. We had a lady come into this very room one time who was a very disruptive force. She was not drawing attention to Jesus. She was drawing attention to herself. You know, we don't have soft music here, right? Okay, I mean, we, 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 we rock it out, you know, or they rock it out. I tell them to do hymns every Sunday. I have no control. So all of you that love hymns, I'm with you. You know, I'm here to just hear hymns and preach the word. This contemporary stuff, that's their problem. But anyway... Boy, I'm a politician at heart, am I not, right? But uh, we, we, we don't have soft music. We have loud music. Well, this lady was so loud that um, people heard it out in the lobby over the music. I mean, so, so I, I pulled her aside and asked her if she could quiet down, and she got offended. We went to the lobby, and so she's like, I got a word for this church. So I asked her this question. I said, Who, who's your pastor? What authority are you under? When I asked her that question, she took off for the parking lot. It wasn't necessarily a bad question, you know. The question is like, what authority are you under? Now, the problem with the religious leaders who asked Jesus this question is they knew the answer. Jesus was claiming to be the son of God, claiming it with his words, claiming it with his healings, and they didn't like the answer. A lot of times we ask a question that we don't, we like, we ask a question and then when we get the answer, we don't like it. So what do we do? And here's the second blank I want you to write down is we begin to, um, we begin to disparage what we don't like. And it's real important, and this is kind of extra credit before we get to the heart of the sermon today. I, I want us to be aware of this because when God begins to move among his people in ways we haven't seen before, and we question it, and we realize that it's still a good thing. It's the gospel. It's still in the bounds of Scripture. We just don't like it. We can wrongly begin to vilify and disparage that which we don't prefer. And I think it's important that we understand today, when, we, when you begin to understand where our authority comes from, we can understand that style and culture we don't have to vilify that. If people are preaching the gospel and they're preaching Jesus and they're preaching the Bible, it's okay if we all, we all have different customs and cultures. I think one of the things that has just been a waste of energy for the American church is all the infighting we've had between churches and denominations and then churches within the denominations. It's just silly, is it not? One thing not all of you have heard uh, something that I taught to the Forward 101 class, but this is new language for our church and our elders that we've talked about. We consider ourselves a three streams church, meaning we have represented in our church the evangelical stream, charismatic stream, and the liturgical stream. That means if you want 
all of one of those streams, you may not be satisfied. If you're like me and enjoy and appreciate aspects of all three streams, this will be a place that you will really enjoy. Now, that gives us a unique standpoint to appreciate the wider body of Christ. But even if you're part of a church that is focused on just one of those streams, we should not disparage, speak against, degrade, slander. People have different customs as long as they have the same Jesus. I mean, it's all about Jesus. It's all about the scripture and what Jesus wants to do. Now, that's all extra stuff, and I really didn't have time to give it to you, but the blanks were there, and I had to fill them in, right? If the blanks are there, we have to fill them in. What I really want to talk to you today is about this concept of authority. Jesus, his, his authority was questioned, and in this particular context, he doesn't answer them. He chose not to answer them, but he answered them many other times, and scriptures you'll see today, and he answered them with the resurrection and, and claimed very clearly to be God. And, and I want to talk to you about this concept of authority. When I was a young minister, and some of you still think I'm a young minister, and I want to say thank you. So I love all the grandmothers of the church. They're still like, you're so young and energetic. My kids don't think so. But when I was a younger minister, um, a friend of mine made a big mistake. A mistake that a lot of us have made. The problem is he made this mistake while he was a vocational pastor. And so he lost his job. And I was just with him, not really knowing what to say. We were on the front porch of a mutual friend's home. And we were just lamenting that this had happened. Just so sad, you know, crying together. And, and I was just listening. And I remember this guy saying, he said, I lost so much. He said, I've lost my job. I've lost my friends because this was a situation where some of his friends were violated. I lost respect. Then he said something that has really stuck with me since that moment because I'd never heard anyone phrase what I'm about to tell you quite this way. And he said, I lost authority. And that's when I first started seeing that authority is truly a gift. And we all have authority in our lives. And we wrongly believe that authority is only what's in the organizational chart. But how many know that's the lowest level of authority? Authority is the essence of who we are. And so we carry authority in our lives in every interaction we have with another human being, with every email we send, with every text, with every Facebook post, with every conversation. We carry a measure of authority. And either we gain more authority or we lose more authority. And so it is that when you do receive positional authority, you're, you're, you're ordained as an elder in the church or you're made the supervisor over that department or whatever the case is, you become a parent. Man, that's a gift from God. And we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't take it lightly. It, it, authority is a gift and we don't see it that way. Jesus preached the word with authority. He was different than the other teachers. He was different from the other rabbis. So the last two years, one of the things I've been praying about on a daily basis really is authority. I've been asking the Lord to increase authority in my life. Back in January, I preached on 
top 10 prayer list, pray 10 things every day. And that's been one of the 10 things for about two years. And I'm gonna tell you that has not been an easy prayer. At first, it sounds like a really prideful prayer. God, give me more authority. Like, come on, Lord, I want all this power so I can rule the people. But it has been extremely humbling. It has caused me to live much more introspectively. It's caused me to give much more evaluation to my life and to understand this important concept of authority and what a gift it is to us and how fragile it is and how easily we can lose it and then we can regain it by grace and that whole ebb and flow and, and how it is that, that um, we run from it, but we need it. There's so many aspects of it. So, so today I just wanna suggest some things that are like ingredients of a stew. And I'm just gonna give you three ingredients just because I like three-point sermons. But you could be a lot. Actually, I'm going to give you an extra one. The reason I say like a stew, and it's stew season coming up, right? The temperature drops below 70. It's chili time. It's taco soup time. It's potato soup time. I mean, here, it's coming, people. And you know that the best stews don't have a recipe that you look at. They just add a little bit of this, add a little bit of that, taste it, a little more of this, whatever the case is. And, And the reason... Chilies and stews and soups are, are so tasteful is because it's the blending of the unique flavors. One isolated is still good, but it's just kind of really good blended. And so I want us to see that as authority, ingredients of authority. And here's the first one. It's not in your notes, so this is extra. You're going to have to write it down, is humility. See, I don't have that on the screen or in the notes, but that's the first thing when I started praying for authority and it's something I still pray is I've realized it takes huge humility to be a person of authority. Because if not, if we don't have humility, our authority becomes very much controlled by the evil one. It hurts, it damages, and, and it's something that we have to watch out. I mean, we can be humble leaders using our authority well Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and blow it on Friday. And so we need the Holy Spirit's help every day. And I could talk more about humility, but I'm gonna move on for the sake of what I believe God wants us to emphasize today. Here's the first one in your notes, scripture. And while you're writing in the word scripture, you can correct a mistake I made. The, the notes say Luke 22, 44 and 45, but it's Luke 24, 44 through 45. This is an amazing scripture. We went over this in Forward 102. Jesus was very aware of what we now call the Old Testament, the teachings of Moses, the teaching of the prophets, the Psalms. Jesus was very aware that he was fulfilling those words. Jesus was a scriptural, scripturally centered person. And you see this through the passage, Luke. 24, starting with verse 44. And then he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Here's the reason why Jesus taught. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, which is Genesis through, through basically um, Deuteronomy, the prophets, as Jeremiah, Isaiah, Lamentations, Obadiah, so on and so on, so forth. The Psalms, must be fulfilled. 
That's a remarkable scripture, guys. Do you see that Jesus was a scripturally centered leader, centered on the Old Testament, the scripture that had been revealed at that time. Now, in response to this, look what he does in verse 45. And then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. These were his disciples. These were his followers. You don't truly understand the revelation of scripture until the Holy Spirit begins to make what is foolish to the world wisdom to you. The Spirit of Jesus comes and he illuminates the scripture to make it life to you. That's why we live in a culture now that is opposed to the scripture, that makes fun of the Bible, that tries to pick it apart, tries to disprove it through all types of techniques, and tries to make it seem like it's some kind of antiquated, irrelevant book. This is simply not the case. Now, I want us to think about something. We're part of the church universal. I know universal feels like a scary word, but this, I'm using it in a good context. Meaning this, everyone who has ever believed in the name of Jesus and he is the way of salvation is part of the church. So we can get all our little pet names for all the little denominations we have and all that kind of stuff, all the little doctrines we follow. But ultimately, when we stand before God, it's gonna be, do you believe Jesus is the son of God, the way to salvation? Whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Calvinistic, Arminian, whatever the case is. I mean, it's all about Jesus. Now, do we agree with that, right? Okay, so we understand we follow a founder. We follow a person who, who was the beginning of our religion. He's the center of our religion. Our, our, our faith is all about Jesus, right? So if we're gonna find authority, wouldn't it make sense that we would go back and investigate what our founder said? These, my friends, are the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were with Jesus, saw Jesus, and their biographies have been tested, and the church fathers for 2,000 years have said, these four books, these gospels are God's word. They are the stories of Jesus. The Old Testament led up to Jesus at the pinnacle. And then Jesus made a mess of everything in a good way. And then, from the Gospels, Paul, Peter, James, they have been explaining what Jesus did. It all goes through the cross. The cross and the resurrection are the pinnacle. It's everything. So the, the, both the Old Testament points to Jesus and the New Testament points back to Jesus. So here it is. We go back to the people who were with Jesus, the original text, and then the people who were also with Jesus, Peter, James, John, others, who said, now this is what he meant. And so here is the foolishness of it. Culture wants to say, and culture now says, I'm not this weak-minded person who follows a single book. They're making it sound like the Bible was written in 2012. And we went to Barnes and Noble and picked it up. In arrogance, the humanistic mindset says, well, we're not limited to a book. We're not as if we're some kind of backwoods, ignorant people who are following this book blindly. No, what we are, we are researchers. 
We are researchers who have gone back to the original intent of our leader. We are researchers who have gone back to original manuscripts that have been verified by people for 2,000 years. That the church father said, this is God's word. The anointing is on these scriptures. You can preach these scriptures. You can proclaim these scriptures. You can sing these scriptures. These, there's, other, there's other texts out there that are not scripture. They're not authenticated. They're not accurate. But the the books we have, the, the 39 books of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled, the 27 books of the New Testament that we preach and we memorize and we proclaim, this is not backwards thinking. This is not small thinking. This is verified, researchable, original manuscripts that tell us who Jesus is. Now, that is a lot more stable than a group of people just saying, this is what we're going to believe. There's a movement today within Christianity that say authority doesn't come from Scripture. Authority comes from the community. We're going to decide what the authority is. No, authority goes back to Scripture. Now, here's the truth. I know churches interpret Scripture differently. But even if churches have differing opinions on the interpretation of Scripture, at least they're going back to Scripture. And in order to have this differing opinion, it must be based off scripture to support scripture. You can't just say, well, we don't like that part. We're not going to believe it anymore. Are you with me on this? Our authority comes from scripture and who God is. Now, one of the great problems with the American church of the 20th and 21st century is the accusation of hypocrisy. Meaning this, is that we don't really believe, live out what we believe. And as an evangelical preacher or a three-string preacher now, uh, I'm going to tell you this, is guilty. Guilty. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you that I don't always live out to the full extent what I preach and teach. And that's why, like you, every Sunday, I'm examining my heart. I'm asking God to forgive me of sins before I go to the communion table. And you guys have seen me, you've probably seen me lose my temper with my kids or disrespect Beth. I've actually done that in the middle of a sermon. Or uh, done things that fall short of the glory of God. So if the accusation is the church is full of hypocrites, I'm gonna say guilty, that we're not perfect. And, and I don't wanna be part of a church where everyone's acting like they got it all together and we're not authentic and we're not real. Now, here's where the problem is. The problem is, is when the church has a haughty, self-righteous, judgmental spirit against culture, and then they're hiding secret sin. Now, that is the kind of hypocrisy that the world uh, causes us to lose our authority. Here's the second type of authority. We talked about scriptural authority. The second type is our morality, moral authority, this is a term you hear in culture a lot. It's a good term. You gotta have moral authority. Nobody wants to hear a speech or a policy or a principle from someone who's not living out what they're teaching. There's just something hollow about that. There's something empty about that. We have moral authority when we live something out. Mother Teresa had moral authority about care for the poor because she gave her life to Calcutta and the people there. When, 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 we, when we live out what we're teaching, there's, there's a, 
a moral authority behind it. There's a fullness. There's something real about it. So it is that, that a lot of times when we're not living out the scripture, we lose a sense of authority. We may know the scripture. We may understand the principles. But when we're not living out the principles, then we lose authority in our life. The stew is not mixing up right. Now, you know, if you listen to my preaching, that I don't preach a work-based salvation. Salvation is only through the cross. It's only by grace. It's only by Jesus. My morality is filthy rags before the Lord. There's no way that I can ever be moral enough to go to heaven. And I hope you understand that we preach a Jesus-centered, cross-centered salvation. But I also know this, is that if Jesus really did for me what I couldn't do for myself, if Jesus really broke chains that I couldn't get free of, if Jesus really did give me access to heaven when I was destined for eternity without God, if Jesus really adopted me when I was outside of God's family and I had no hope with him, if that's really happened, if I understand that, it should affect my morality. It simply should. And I want to show you this through Scripture. 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 3, says this. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. The one who says, quote, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. And it goes on and talks about the love that we have. Brothers and sisters, I wanna be really clear on this, I wanna be clear that Jesus is the only way to salvation. You can't earn salvation, but I also wanna be clear about this. So the scripture is clear that a believer's life is marked by obedience. Simply put, the fruit of a Christian, the fruit of someone who's been redeemed, the fruit of someone who is trusting Christ and Christ alone for a salvation should be a life of obedience. And when we judge the world, and we cast judgment on other people's sin without giving judgment to the house of God first. And when we do so in a prideful, arrogant, haughty way, and then we have secret sin and we don't live that life, it does damage to the gospel. If you have the truth and carry the word and carry the scripture, but you don't live a life of obedience behind that, your words actually hurt the gospel. And we need to understand that our moral authority really matters. And when we're not living life morally, then we can't be bold about the things we're supposed to be bold about. I remember there was a time when I thought I could never preach on marriage because I wasn't taking care of business in my house. I wasn't being the, the, the husband that, that, I, that I, I knew that if I came and taught you guys about marriage, it, it would be no good. I had no moral authority behind me. Then I told my, our marriage counselor that, and he said, well, Aaron, here's the good news. Most people who like to talk about marriage, he said there's less than 1% of people that have a truly compatible marriage, and they're the ones that like to teach on marriage. So the fact that you and Beth have been through struggles will actually help people. So watch out. You don't know. We may be in matching leather coats, you know, with a cheek-to-cheek marriage seminar coming up. You would hate that, wouldn't you? Right. I know Beth would hate that. But the point is, I had lost my confidence about talking about marriage because I didn't have a moral authority. My marriage wasn't good. 
Thank God it's at a good place now. Thank God through, through all the different tools the Lord's helped us, we're doing, we're doing good now. So it is with our morality. There's areas of our life that we're not confident about speaking against sin because we're not following the Lord like we should. We, we know the truth of scripture, but we don't have the moral authority. Now look at the scripture in Romans chapter two. And if you are convinced that you are, this is, this is a description of how many Christians wanna be. If you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the full expression of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who, who preach, you who preach, you must not steal, do you not steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Now look at verse 24, all, all of that led to this scripture. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is here clearly talking about people inside God's family, outside of God's family, and the Gentiles represent that. The name of God is cursed because of our lack of morality. Because, because we, we spew the truth out, but we're not living the truth. And let those things come together. Let those things come together and be combined because the, the gospel truth is so powerful that it changes our lives. And, and when we have the moral authority, then we have the platform to speak the scriptural authority. What is the most difficult job in the world? What do you think it is? I'm studying education and some surveys have said presidents of small colleges because they have to raise money, manage faculty, deal with government regulations. Some might say the president of the United States. I mean, who would want that job, right? Okay, about 20 people want it right now. But yeah, theoretically, you have to almost be narcissistic to want that job. What about a heart surgeon? Can you imagine opening up a chest cavity, stopping a heart, making a repair, getting that heart to, to, to function again properly? That would be a highly stressful job. I want to give a suggestion to you. To me, the most stressful job in the world would be a high school substitute teacher. And in Sumner County, they get paid $50 a day. Here's the reason why. For one day, that substitute teacher has to assert authority with no prior relationship. It's very difficult to do. Here's the last ingredient I want to talk to you about is relationship. Because you may know the truth and you may have an impeccable lifestyle, but if you don't do the work to build a relationship with people, they don't care how much you know and they don't care how moral you are until you build bridges to them. This is so true. This is true. Step parents, this is so true. You, you may have been trained and prayed up and all that, but you have to build a bridge with your stepchildren before you can effectively lead them. I guess it's true for parents also. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, I love the scripture. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Don't you love that relational component? That's why the body of Christ is so important. That's so, why it's so important that you understand that we're not just preaching points. You're not just here to hear preaching or hear music. You can do that, access that any way you want to. You're here to build relationships because relationship is when life really is taught. Information is dispensed through teaching and through the anointing and 
uh, you know, an anointing will impact a service and impact a group, but a lifestyle really changes things. That's why we cannot, a, a trend in America that we have to watch out for is separating the preaching of the word from relationship. With the technology advances we have, this is a trend that we just have to look out. If not, it's just a preaching point. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10 through 14 says this. I love this. You know, however, Paul is writing to Timothy. You know all about my teaching, but look at this, my way of life. You see that? Timothy knew how Paul talked to people. He knew his tone of voice when he corrected people. My way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. He goes on to read, say other things. We don't have time to read together. Let's go to the last slide, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. You see this relational component that God wants us to have? He wants us to be people of authority, people who are scripturally based, people who are living with morality, people who are in relationship. So those ingredients and humility, and we could, you could probably create other ingredients, are creating this aroma and taste, this good thing that says Jesus at the end. Let's stand together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Some of us have thought that praying for more authority in our life has been an arrogant prayer, but it's not. It will humble you. And I believe it's a good prayer for you. I believe it's a good prayer. I want to, I want to implore you. I want to encourage you to begin to seek God for more authority in your life. You say, I don't want more authority. Well, then you're a good candidate to receive more authority because it's not about you. It's not about your power. It's about kingdom assignments. It's about God wanting to let his gospel come forth. He, he wants you to change some things in your life. You know, so there's more authority in your life. Humble yourself sacrifice, living a sacrificial life so you can be qualified for more authority. This is a good thing for you. It's a good thing for you. It's a good thing for the kingdom. It's a good thing for your spouse, for your future spouse. It's a good thing for your family. It's a good thing for this church. The Lord wants us to be humble enough to have more authority, but we cannot go beyond what is written. We cannot go beyond what is revealed. We gotta be people of the scripture, people of the word, and people of morality, people who just are more disciplined, saying no to more sin and yes to more things of the Lord. This is, this is what the Lord would want. This is what the Lord would want. I wanna give you time before I dismiss to seek the Lord. I was, I was encouraged in the first service. Uh, I don't really know what this means, but a, a man I trusted said, you need to have an altar call. Well, I thought we do have an altar call. We have communion and stuff. So I don't really know what that meant to him besides this, is that traditionally the front of the church um, has often been like an altar. These steps can be an altar. I mean, they were built to get us up on the stage, but they could represent an altar where you're saying, God, I'm laying down my life as a sacrifice. And some of us just need to lay down some sin. We need to lay down some um, lethargic, lethargic behavior. We need to lay down some, um, I just lack of attentiveness to the things of God. And we need to be everything God wants us to be. Some of us have great relationships and we have a moral life, but we're just not diligent people of the scripture. I wanna encourage you to start reading five verses a day, not five chapters, not one chapter. When I started reading the Bible, it was five verses a day and watch God begin to take your connections and your personality and your relationship. And he's gonna add that anointing to it because it's not your words or your opinions anymore. It's the word of the living God that's gonna empower you. That which is, that has been tested, approved, and set apart for God as holy and special. That's what the Lord wants. God, let's pray together.